0: Doing daily devotions repatterns the way we think, transforms the spirit of our mind, and helps us become more like Jesus. Join us here, Monday through Friday, as various pastors and leaders at Fusion Church share devotion and teaching through that day's soap scripture. Download the current soap reading plan at fusionchurch.cc soap. Father, we just thank you. As we start this day, Lord, uh, there's no better way to do it than to start it with you and with brothers and sisters. And Lord, we're coming with one purpose, and that would be to meet you afresh through your word. So Holy Spirit, we know you're the one that inspired these words in the Bible, and we're just praying that you would breathe upon them, that you would apply them, Lord, uh, uniquely to each person on the screen. You know what each of us needs. Uh, And I believe in this chapter, somehow, some way, you'll speak to each of us uh, at a specific point of need. So Lord, we're depending on you to lead us, and I thank you, Lord, for touching each of our hearts through your word and through God's spirit. And it's in your name we pray, Lord, amen. Amen. Okay, so let's, let's read through 1 Peter chapter 3, and then we'll go from there. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chase and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands likewise, Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing for let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile let him turn away from evil and do good let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer but the face of the lord is against those who do evil And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better, if God should will so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, which also he went and made proclamation of the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Okay. That's first Peter and that's chapter three. Okay. Uh, As I was looking at this, uh, there's a a number of sections. I think we could definitely gain something from and be able to apply uh, to our lives. The first thing is this relationship between husbands and wives. I'm gonna just read that little chunk again. Uh, It says, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. So let me just say right up front here, uh, this chunk, verses one to seven, is really good if you're married, okay? So if you're married, ladies, there's something for you, and gentlemen, Uh, There's going to be something for you as well. And if you're not married and you're going to marry somewhere in the future, then these same verses apply to you. The Bible does give us some really good teaching in the dynamics of a marriage, okay? So number one, it says here, uh, and I know this sometimes rubs the ladies the wrong way. Uh, It sounds kind of harsh, okay? And I'm going to try to unpack this a bit. It says, in the same way, you wise be submissive to your husbands. And when people hear that, there's almost like a knee-jerk reaction uh, that, you know, the husband is the master in the marriage, and the wife is the slave. Uh, and basically, uh, in the sense, she could be the doormat. She, she is the slave, literally. The guy is the honcho, the head honcho. He's running the show, that kind of thing. Um I don't really believe that's the way the scripture interprets it. I want to read a passage that goes along with this, uh, almost paralyze it, and it's interesting to me how the Bible fits beautifully like a unity. So, what Peter says is not contradicted by Paul and vice versa. The Bible fits together almost like a puzzle. So, Peter makes this statement, and then if you flip back uh, and uh, I'm just going to give you the verses. You can look at them a little bit later. Uh, if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, it's similar. Paul says almost something the same. He says, wise, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is submissive to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So it's interesting to me, uh, they're saying the same kind of thing in just a little bit of a different way. So let's, let's try to unpack that. What I think it says here, Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife. I think what he's saying, uh, the way Christ is the head of the church, he gives direction, okay? The head, my head gives direction to my body. Okay, what it needs to do, where it needs to go, that kind of thing. What I hear Paul saying uh, is the head, the man in the marriage is to give spiritual direction. The man is to be the spiritual leader of the home uh, and to give direction to how that marriage and how that family should go. Uh, And it's interesting if you go uh, and I want to say just a word about this. Go to um, verse seven. You husbands, likewise, be understanding of your wives, it says, and it says, as a weaker vessel. Again, uh, that that's tough. Uh, I don't know of a lot of ladies like to hear, okay, you're the weaker vessel. Now, you could say, well, in a sense, that could be just a physical thing. You know, guys basically are overall stronger than women. But I don't think that's what he means by the weaker vessel. I think what Peter's saying here is that literally we are designed, men are designed to lead, I think, and then basically women are to literally lean into the leadership and the protection of their husbands. Okay? Somebody in a marriage ultimately has to give uh, a leadership. Uh, Ideally, I think if you have a strong Christian marriage, it's a mutual thing and you move together, pray together, make decisions together. Um, In my own situation with Barb, we were married 45 years. And I would say out of that time, maybe three times, I had to give some direction. In other words, most of the time we could pray, Lord, what do you want? We came together, came to solution. But there were a couple of times where we just could not get on the same page and somebody had to get the ball rolling. So we just didn't stay there and get stuck And at that point I gave the direction. So I think men are designed to lead spiritually and women, I think, lean into that leadership and that protection. Uh, But you might be saying, uh, ladies, well, what am I to do? A, if I have a husband that's not wanting to lead. And number two, my husband isn't even a Christian at all. So what, what am I to do in that dilemma, okay? That's a realistic thing. So I would say, number one, is don't try to coerce your husband to lead. Don't try to coerce him to lead. Don't try to force your husband to become a Christian, or you're trying, I'm going to make this happen. I know a situation where there was a lady in one of the churches I pastored, and I mean she was going to get her husband saved no matter what, and she would keep kind of banging the drum, she would leave tracks, uh, you know, uh, basically in the bathroom. I mean, she was just like, this guy got going to become a Christian one way or the other if it kills me. Uh, and I don't believe that's what Peter says. Notice what he says here. Chapter 3, 1. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, okay, the guys are just not living up to what they're supposed to do. They may be one. Okay, how does a woman lead a man in a sense to get closer to Christ? That they may be one without a word. Peter says, it's not you preaching that's going to get the job done. Okay, without a word, that they may be one without a word. How? How, ladies, can you get your husband to lead? How can you get your husband? Uh, to become a Christian. Here's the big answer, by the behavior of their wives, by the behavior. In other words, the way you act is going to make all the difference in the world. And then Peter begins to unpack this and he says, okay, ladies, is this what you're after? Here's what I'm telling you to do. And he says here, um, two, uh, this is about their behavior. One, as they observe your what? Chaste and respectful behavior. Um, I looked up the word chaste basically means it's pure and modest. So, ladies, that would be a call that you would be living a pure life, a modest life. And it says respectful, respecting their husband. Okay. <clears throat> and then he goes on a little bit further and goes and unpacks it more on verse three. Let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. In other words, Peter says, the important thing, ladies, is not the way you dress, okay? It's not an outer thing that's going to touch your husband. As he says, you know, make your hair all nice and spiffy, or, you know, you put on this uh, beautiful dress, whatever. He says, here's the way you're going to lead your husband to a deeper walk with Christ. It's your behavior. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with an impassable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit. So Peter says you want to win your husband, be gentle. That's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Let the fruits of gentleness flow through you as you interact with your husband and a quiet spirit. I think that means it's not, you know, you're not pushy. You're not harsh. You're not pushing your agenda trying to make it happen no stand back take your hands off let god do the work let him do the changing this is the big deal don't try to change your husband stand aside live this beautiful lifestyle let jesus shine through you pray for your husband and i think peter says if that's the way it's going to happen that's how there's going to be a change not by you making it happen, but by letting God making it happen through your prayers and through your behavior. Now, gentlemen, you might be saying, "Well, hi, listen to what the Lord says to these ladies." Well, guess what, guys, we're not off the hook. So uh, he basically goes on a little bit here in verse seven. You husbands, likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. Okay. So gentlemen, we are to be understanding. Man, so much in marriage is communication. And sometimes communication is just, it's like this. The people just don't, they don't get together. Understanding means I want to get into your shoes. I want to feel what you feel. I want to see in this relationship, in this problem in our marriage, I wanna see it from your perspective. It is so easy to get locked into my perspective and so locked into the idea that my perspective is right and your perspective is wrong. And Peter said, no, 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 no. Husbands, you be understanding. Try to understand what your wife is saying. Try to understand why she's acting the way she is, okay? Uh, and then it goes on a little bit more, grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of God. Honor your wife, honor her, treat her with respect. Sometimes subtly, uh, I've seen this happen on either sides of men and women in public that they put little jibes in against the other person. Just little nudges, like little, little barbs that are shot there. Uh, and that's not respectful. That's actually putting somebody down. So I think he says, honor your wife, respect her. And getting, I want to get back to Ephesians again, what Paul said, and this is Ephesians chapter 5, 25. He says, look, get this, gentlemen. I have to speak to me too, okay? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, guys, you're the leader, and we are to love the way Jesus loved. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How did did Christ love the church? Absolutely sacrificial. He gave himself up for her. He put the needs of the church before his own needs. And friends, there's just no way, guys, that I can love my wife with with the love of Christ unless Jesus puts that love in me through the Holy Spirit. Humanly, we do not have the the ability, gentlemen, to love our wives that way. Humanly, we have a tendency to go selfish and get wrapped up into me, my needs. Are you making me happy? That's the human tendency. And Paul says, no, no, no. You need to let the love of Jesus, the sacrificial giving love that says, Wife, you're more important than me, and my first responsibility is not to look out for me, but it's to look out for you. Now, I would wait you to say, and I think this is a true statement. Ladies, if your husband would indeed love you with the love of Christ, I don't think you're going to have a problem following him. Because which lady would not want to be loved in that kind of a sacrificial giving, sacrificing kind of a way? So I think this is a big deal uh, about husbands and wives. Uh, So important. And what it boils down to, husbands, love your wives with the love of Christ. Wives, love your husband with the love of Christ. Let Jesus be the center of the marriage. Keep him always the center. Pray together. Talk together. Invite Jesus into the issues when they come up. And I believe as God does that through the Holy Spirit, tremendous things can happen in the marriage. Now, look at the end of verse seven. It says here. Husbands, uh, you know, you need to treat your wife in a certain way so that your prayers may not be hindered. Guess what, folks? Our prayers can get hindered by different things. I think, you know, some people go into the uh, understanding of prayer, you know, God's obligated to answer any prayer I pray, and that is not the case. The Bible's extremely curious. God, yes, wants to answer prayer, but there are conditions for answered prayer. It's not like carte blanche, you know, I just say, okay, Lord, here's what I want, da-da-da-da, and I should expect it. The Bible says God wants to answer prayer, but there are conditions. One is, when I pray a prayer, it has to be in alignment with His will. Okay, If I'm praying out of his will, he's not going to answer my prayer because it's not what's best for me. God's will is always best. And sometimes he doesn't answer prayer the way I think because if he did, it wouldn't be for my best interest. So our prayers need to be in alignment with his will. I think we also need to realize that nowhere does the Bible promise that God will immediately answer prayers when we pray. Okay, Many times the Bible says, We get our prayers answered by having patience and persistence. Okay, so it's another condition of prayer. We have to be patient. Give God time to unfold his purpose in your prayer life. Uh, I think another thing the Bible says, if you want your prayers answered, uh, you can't be walking in a state of sin and disobedience. God's not going to answer that kind of prayer. I'll tell you why. Because if I have a sinful lifestyle, if I'm doing my own deal, and God answers prayer, then I'm assuming my lifestyle is appropriate and God's good with it. So in a sense, sometimes God doesn't answer prayer to get our attention and say, hey, I want you to dig a little deeper, start looking at why your prayers are not being answered. And if we pray that openly, God may say, well, I can't answer the prayer because of this other issue that you and I need to deal with. And if you don't deal with it, your prayers are going to be hindered and not much is going to happen. Okay. Uh so if you go a little bit further, uh, that it says here, this is so important because when we're talking about prayers being answered, and no, all look at verse 16. Peter says this, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is this is a biggie. I would underline this. Probably if there's anything that I'd say would be the most important thing in this chapter is that statement. What's he say? Keep a good conscience. And he says that again in 21. But an appeal to God for a good conscience. Okay, everybody has a conscience, okay? There's something in us that says this is right, and that's wrong, okay? That comes many times as we read the Bible, We know that we should do these things. We shouldn't do other things. But even if we don't read the Bible per se, there is something deep inside of us that's a monitor that says right, wrong, okay? So I think our conscience is there to keep us in alignment with God's will, to keep us in fellowship with God. So if I'm beginning to veer out of relationship, then it's almost like, you know, when you're on the road and you're, you're going a light and you see a yellow light, When you see a yellow light, there's always something inside that goes, what do I do? Uh, There's a little bit of an uncomfortable feeling with the yellow light, because we know if I don't watch it, it's going to become red. And then the police are going to get me and all that good stuff. So your conscience is there to almost be like the yellow light. It's almost like your conscience is there waving a red flag saying, hey, do not do this. Do not do this. David committed adultery with Bathsheba, okay? But I believe before he committed adultery, his conscience, the Holy Spirit inside of David was saying, David, don't do it, okay? The conscience warns us ahead of time, do not do a specific behavior because it's going to short-circuit your relationship with the Lord. It's going to hinder your prayer. Not only does the conscience warn us, don't do certain things, The conscience is also there to say, guess what? You just went through a red light, okay? You just sinned. You did something clearly that was against God and against his word, and inside this little alarm is going off saying, guess what? You've sinned, you've done something wrong. And again, the aim of the conscience is to get us to be convicted, And then secondly, to have us confess our sin, to go to the Lord and say, Lord, okay, I own up to it. I went through a red light, I'm wrong. And let me go even further, this gets a little radical because not only does the conscience say, okay, you've sinned, not only does the conscience uh, convict us of that sin to make us want to confess, the conscience goes further and says, okay, don't only just confess, repent. And repenting of the sin is different than confessing. Confessing says, God, I'm sorry, and I go on my way. Repenting means, God, I am sorry, and I don't want to do it again. And I think all of us can be guilty of, yeah, it's easy. I can confess, but how many times do I repent? How many times do I say to God, I don't want to ever do that specific sin again? so easy to say, Lord, I confess it, okay, on my way, but I'm not really... Deep down in the inside, ready to change my way. So, Peter is saying, listen to your conscience. Listen to your conscience. Uh, and I think by that, it's meaning make sure that you're walking in alignment with God's word. Uh, and when we do mess it up, uh, then basically uh, there's something we can do. In 1 John 1:9, it says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so when we mess up, we've given the blood of Christ to cleanse us. So I just would hammer that one today and say, how are you doing with your conscience? Okay, I got to ask myself that, but I got to ask you that. How am I doing? Am I blowing my conscience off? Am I ignoring it? Or when I hear the Spirit speak, am I willing to say, God, I own up to it, I'm wrong, I confess it, and I'm willing to turn from it. So important. So basically, uh, why uh, do we need to deal with a clear conscience? Because when we sin, we break fellowship, okay? You can have that sweet relationship with the Lord, but it's not so sweet when we sin. It's like a monkey wrench gets thrown in there and That doesn't mean I lose my salvation, but it means I lose the closeness and the intimacy with the Lord that I'm working with and trying to cooperate with the Lord in that. So look at this, uh, verse 18, talking about forgiveness and all that stuff and fellowship. Verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to Christ, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So why can God forgive us? Why can he cleanse us? Why can he restore us relationship here? Because Christ died for sins. The Bible says every one of us all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every single one on the screen and outside here. And not only have we all sinned, uh, but the good news is Jesus died to remove those sins from us. We can't cleanse our own heart. We can't fix ourselves, but God sent Jesus literally to fix us, to put us back together. How? He died on a cross. How says what? Once for all, Jesus didn't have to die many times, the just person, him just, for us, the unjust. And the beautiful thing is that, and what's the end game of that? Why does God forgive us? Is it just to give us that sense of relief from our our guilty conscience? I mean, that's part of salvation. But friends, that is not the end game of salvation. It's not just to forgive sins. It's to remove the barrier of sin so that we can have relationship with God. If you remember when Jesus died on the cross, died for our sins, the Bible says in the temple, the curtain was torn into the very presence of God. It was torn from the top all the way to the bottom. God was saying, guess what? Now there's an entry directly into my presence. Through the cross, now we can come boldly and have a dynamic, close, intimate walk with our creator. That is possible. In other words, we can be restored to the fellowship that Adam and Eve had when they walked with God in the Garden of Eden. If you can ponder what that would have been. No sin. Total fellowship with God. Intimacy with God, intimacy with creation, intimacy with each other, and that's what God wants to do. It says that right here, 18, he died, that just for the unjust what that he might bring us to God to restore a relationship, and friends, that's the core of Christianity. Christianity in its essence is not keeping the rules, do this, do that. Don't do this. That's not the essence of Christianity. The essence is a dynamic, living, life-changing relationship with your Savior. That's what it's all about. Okay. Now, in regards to uh, relationships, Peter's not just talking about husbands and wives. If you look at verse 8, this is the way it's supposed to be in the church and really in the world. That's the end game. Peter says this to sum up let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind hearted, and humble in spirit. So in all relationships with other people, Peter said, here's what should be as Christians. Number one, there should be harmony, meaning there should be a unity in the body of Christ, a unity in marriages. A unity between churches. That's why we have this revival prayer once a month. We want to get churches so that not every church is just doing their own little deal in compartments. We're one body. It doesn't matter what the local church's name is or a denomination. We are one body. So Peter says, no, in relationships, I want them to be harmony. I want them united. And you can know that Satan is doing everything possible he can to cause division between churches, to cause division in churches, to cause divisions between husbands and wives and parents and children. Satan is the divider. God is the one that pulls us together. So Peter says, as you're interacting, be harmonious. He says, further, be sympathetic. So I have to ask myself the question, and I ask you that, am I sympathetic? Am I a sensitive person? Am I a caring person? Am I a compassionate person? Sympathetic means I have a heart. I have sympathy. I feel what's for what's going on in your life. I'm concerned what's going on in your life. I wanna make a response. He goes on further. We need to be brotherly and kind-hearted. Again, that's all about love. It's all about family. And I, I like what he says. The word kind, it's kind of hard to just to, uh, define kindness. It's more something that you can feel versus I can give you a nice definition. You know, when you've encountered a kind person. I guess the opposite of kind would be cruel. Kind means it's just kind, gentle, caring. Cruel is just gonna, I don't care. I'm just gonna run you over uh, and just do my own little deal. And then it says also, we are to be humble. We are to be humble in spirit. The opposite of humble is proud. The ultimate example of proud is the devil. Devil was filled with himself. Just filled. It was all about him. It was all about what he wanted, all what he could do. And the opposite of that is humble. I believe a humble person is somebody that realizes, apart from Christ, I can't really do anything. Jesus even said that, apart from me, you can do nothing. Humble means, Lord, if you don't show up, Holy Spirit, if you're not moving in my life, I'm just plain dead in the water. I desperately need you, because if you're not involved in my life, I'm not going to go anywhere quickly. Uh, If you go further, look at another verse here, uh, in regards to how we're to respond we're to respond with being kind-hearted humble and then here's something else as Christians we're to do if you look at nine not returning evil for evil or insult for insult but giving a blessing instead for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing okay in other words I I hear Peter said don't let people bring you down to their level okay If they're insulting you, don't insult them back. No, no. If they insult you, turn the tables and you bless them instead. Jesus is clear on that. Uh, Let me give you a statement of Jesus in Matthew 5 and 43. Listen to the Lord, what he says. You've heard that it is said, this is Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But So anybody have an enemy here? Okay, probably we may have something that just drives us nuts an enemy. Okay, what are you to do? But I say to you, love your enemies. Wow. Pray for those who persecute you. In order that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even tax collectors do the same. If you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than anybody else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Wow. So, folks, if you got an enemy, you need to love them. And guess what? We can't do it humanly. You need, I need the love of God. There's no other way I can love my enemy except by the love of Jesus shining through me. And he goes further, if somebody's giving you a hard time persecuting, you pray for them. You pray for him. And then he goes a little bit further, uh, back to 1 Peter 3.10. Let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. The Lord is very clear here. Watch your tongue. And if you want a great study, and we've done it somewhere in the soaps back away, if you want to get a good handle on your tongue, read James chapter 3. It's all about the tongue and it says, it's the hardest thing in your body to control. And you can see why, because there's things that flip out of our mouth very quickly. If you're gonna blow up, you don't do it without opening your mouth, right? If I'm gonna have a temper tantrum, I just don't sit there. (laughs) My mouth gets running away, okay? And look at how sweet you folks are. Everyone on this thing has had a time where we have blown up. And probably it wasn't a very pretty scene. And here he's saying here, basically, watch your tongue. Watch your tongue. And he goes on a little bit further. 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Okay, he said, do good. Think about it, Jesus is being nailed to the cross. If anybody could have reviled and cursed, And lashed out, it could have been Jesus cursing the people that were crucifying him. And what did Jesus do? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They were hurting him. They were doing evil, but he did good in return. And this next one, I think, is really, really important. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him seek peace and pursue it. I think Peter's saying, if there's a battle, a problem between you and another person, whether it's a Christian or a non Christian, I think Peter's saying, do everything you can on your end to try to square things away. So if you have something against somebody or you believe they have something against you, I believe as Christians, we are to go to that person and to the best of our ability, go to them and say, we got to talk this thing through. And I think that's appropriate at times to say, you know, What you said hurt me. I I don't think there's anything wrong. The Bible says speak the truth, but speak it in love. So if somebody has hurt you, I think you can, in a kind way, go and say, hey, we need to talk this through. You hurt me by what you did. Or the other way, you may sense that somebody's upset with you. If there's a doubt, then deal with it. It's interesting. It says here in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, if possible as it depends on you. So if there's a breach in any relationship, and I would wager to say with the number of people here on the screen, there's gotta be some relationships that have been breached, where there's a barrier and there's a big gap. And I think the Lord is saying, if you know that, do everything on your end to try to bring reconciliation. Do all that you can. And as we're beginning to wrap up here, uh, 14, he says here, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. So basically, I'm beginning to run out of time, but it's, it's saying here that we will suffer, but suffer because of living a Christian lifestyle. Don't suffer because you're sinning. It's natural to suffer when you sin, but if you're being persecuted, as he said, return good for uh, evil. So let's wrap up in verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Always be ready to make a defense. So what I think Peter's saying here, if somebody would come to you today and say, okay, why? Why do you believe in Christ? Why are you a Christian? I think Peter said you ought to be able to give an answer to that person. Not like, okay, well, let me, uh, I'll get back to you later. Let me figure it out. I'll give you a call in a couple of days. I think Peter said on the tip of our tongue, we should be able to give a defense why I believe what I believe. Uh, And I think that's called a testimony. Uh, The best way I could say a testimony would be, uh, what's the difference that Christ has made in your life? What were you before you were a Christian? what are you after you're a Christian? In other words, what difference has Jesus made? That's your testimony. And that's going to be totally unique to you. Your testimony may be totally different to mine. But it's what is the difference? Uh, in my case, when I try to share a testimony um, in my life, I, I try to start out with the positive. You know, God loves us. God loves me. And I emphasize that because so many people don't really feel that they're loved. I, I started always start out, God loves me, but there's a problem. The Bible calls it sin. Many people can't identify with the word sin in our culture, so I would just use the word selfishness, okay? God loves us, there's a problem, there's selfishness. I got a selfish heart, you do. And then the gospel goes on, you can't fix it. You could try to be this sweet person on your own power, but we fall flat on our face. So I can't fix me, but Jesus did. And that's exactly why he went to the cross, because on the cross, he took our sin and our guilt and our shame and all the junk. I have a problem. I've sinned. I can't solve it. Jesus did. And then a Christian is somebody that puts their trust. Yes, thank you, Lord. You died for me, not just general. You died for me, and I trust that, Lord. And because you did that, because you died for me, the least I can do is live for you. Be not only my savior, be my Lord. Because I love you, I want to follow you. And when they make that decision, then they are officially a Christian. So I guess I would end up here with just the challenge. You might want to write up a testimony. I don't know if you've ever done that. Write up your testimony so that if somebody sees you a couple of days from now and says, hey, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe that you, you've written it up? Here, here it is. It's right on a piece of paper. And, and I'm going to write out just so in my own head, I know what I'd share. That doesn't mean you're going to read it, but it means as you write it out, it'll give you an ability to think through, okay, how do I want to present what Jesus has done in my life to change it? So 1 Peter chapter 3 is rich in regards to how we relate to each other. It's rich in sharing testimonies. It's rich in how we should have certain behavior, and it's extremely rich in keep a good conscience. Don't violate your conscience, don't blow it off, because it's what's to keep you in sync and in a relationship with the Lord. So let's pray, Father. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the journey through First Peter chapter three. Thank you, Lord. You address relationships, Lord, and I pray for. Everybody in the screen, I pray for myself, Lord, if there's something in relationships that needs to be shifted, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's a parent-child situation, whether it's friendships that have been broken, uh, whether it's with the boss that's driving me crazy, Lord, we pray, help us to apply what we've read in different relationships. Uh, And Father, we pray also that uh, you'd help us to keep a good conscience, Lord. Help us, uh, Holy Spirit, not to blow you off when you blow the whistle and say, hey, that was wrong. Help us, Lord, to confess our sin, to repent of it. And Father, give us the ability to have a testimony, uh, to be able to share with others what you've done in our lives. So Lord, put a blessing, I pray, on each of my brothers and sisters. uh, Just continue to guide and lead all of us for your glory and honor. And it's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.